Welcome to Venture Unlocked. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. In this week's episode, we have the great pleasure of chatting with Greg Sands, founder of Costa Nova Ventures. Through Greg's career journey as he went from being the first product manager at Netscape to a long career at Sutter Hill Ventures before spinning out and launching Costa Nova in 2012. On the show, Greg gives his candid insights on what it was like raising a $100 million first fund as a solo GP, his views on concentrated portfolios, and his general tips for running a successful venture capital firm. Now, without any further delay, let's get into the discussion to hear all of that and more. Greg, it's so great to have you on the show. I'm thrilled to be here. So I've been really excited to have this conversation with you, given your vast history in venture investing. But why don't we start off with your journey into venture and what has led you to where you are right now? Of course, the journey really started at Netscape, where I was the first product manager hired at the company and wrote the first business plan and shipped the early products. Uh, eventually, came up with the name Netscape when the company was forced to uh, change its name, and then was the uh, ran the division that managed the suite of internet server software called called SweetSpot, and that was uh, we grew that zero to about a uh, hundred and fifty million dollars in revenue uh, during the time uh, that I was there. So that basically gave me the opportunity in the venture business. So I was recruited into Sutter Hill Ventures. It probably bears saying that being in product management at one of the seminal companies of its era is probably the easiest path in into venture. And I got to spend 13 years at, at Sutter Hill uh, learning the craft of venture capital uh, with a terrific group of people and investors. There I was investing at uh, what we thought of as Series A then, but uh, some of those would look like Series A's and some of those would look like seeds in today's nomenclature. And then in 2012, left to form Costa Noa Ventures and have been doing that for the last eight years. I remember when you launched Costa Noa in 2012, I think we were sitting in a small conference room and I believe I asked the question back then, I'm going to ask it now, but what inspired leaving Sutter Hill to start your own firm? Well, I think the biggest thing was, frankly, what inspires all great founders, which is seeing a market gap. And I, I'd seen some great firms get formed in uh, in the period before that, including people like True and First Round and Union Square and Foundry and Emergence uh, and even what is now Uncork. And at the same time, I hadn't really seen anybody go focus on enterprise technology and focus on it in a way that accommodated what I referred to earlier as the craft of venture capital that was being a foundational investor, uh, not uh, you know running a relatively narrow portfolio so you had the time and energy to be a life cycle partner to a founder and the portfolio construction that uh, that comes with it. I just hadn't seen it been, be done. And that, to me, was the biggest reason to take the leap. Now, going back to the actual time frame of when you raised the first fund for Costa Noa, it was still early innings of emerging manager. Most managers at the time were largely focused on investing in seed and really bridging that gap between angel and Series A money. But I remember you said your vision was to build a boutique venture firm. What did you mean when you said that? To me, boutique means focused expertise in a specific set of categories. So today we would think of that as uh, applied AI, enterprise infrastructure, and fintech. But at the time, we basically talked about it as enterprise technology. It means 
bounded capital size. So if you've got a billion or a multi-billion dollar fund, you have to invest differently with a different strategy, different portfolio construction, different orientation than someone who's investing out of uh, like us, $175 million fund. One thing I, I always really enjoy talking to people about is their first fundraise. And a lot of people I think would be surprised to hear that you leaving Sutter Hill after 13 years with a long track record actually didn't have a really, really easy fundraise. Tell us a little bit about that first fundraise. I'll start out by saying fundraising for a venture capital firm shouldn't be easy. People are giving you capital that is committed. They have no outs over a 10 to 12 year time horizon, and they have no commitment about what you're going to invest in. <laughs> it's an incredible leap of faith for any LP to give money to a, a venture capital firm, let alone a first-time firm. And at the same time, you know, I'd been at, a, at Sutter Hill as an evergreen fund. I not only had never raised capital, I'd never even seen it be done. <laughs> and I'd never had a sales job, right? And raising money is a sales job. And so on one hand, I got a $100 million fund launched in four and a half months. And so by some standards, I would say, you know, it's right to say, hey, that, that, that went pretty darn well. But I don't think I understood how much work it was going to be that necessarily, you know, 75% of people say no. And sometimes they do that just by ghosting you and not returning phone calls. And, uh, and, and it was a, you know, it was a pressure cooker. So I'd say, in addition to the fact that it was, you know, physically hard, I just think it was, frankly, an emotional challenge that any founder, including a founder of a venture capital firm, has as they're out pitching their baby, their inspiration to the rest of the world. And, you know, some people love it, but some people don't. And I do think that your four and a half months, by the way, is very atypical. The average over the last decade is still around 17 months. It hasn't changed too much. Your situation, though, that you mentioned is you never had raised a fund before. You had never really sold. Were there people that helped accelerate your journey for your fundraise? I always hear, you know, certain GPs say, look, you know, these two or three people really helped me, mentor me, gave me the guide frame of how to fundraise and introduced me to LPs. Were there people in your journey that really helped? Absolutely. And the two most important were Brad Feld and Fred Wilson. And both of those I've been uh, on the return path board together with. And, you know, Return Path was one of those kind of seminal moments in so many people's careers, including, I think, the two of them and Matt Blumberg. You know, they were basically the first couple of calls. And they've been mentors to me in thinking about how to build a firm, how to think about bringing on partners. You know, their friendship and partnership has been a really important part of building Costano into what it is. So what were the pieces of advice they gave you when you first started? Do you remember and recall some of the things that really stood out? Well, I remember walking down the streets of Manhattan with Fred before I'd actually left to go do this. And he said, sounds like a great idea. The first thing you have to do is to get a partner. <laughs> and of course, I didn't have that person in, in 2012. And it was relatively new to be a sole GP, you know, there are a few people that had uh, that had done it, but it's it wasn't as common then as it is now, for sure. I went back and forth with him, you know, a bit on that. Brad made a couple of introductions that were uh, among our first institutional commitments and the catalyst of getting the first institutional commitment 
was incredibly important. One of the things that they helped me think through is I'll call it translating up to LP speak, right? So in some ways, venture capitalists are an API layer. Uh, you know, you speak to founders in one direction. I won't call it town for all the obvious reasons, but you speak to founders in one direction where you're just th you're thinking about products and companies and people and product strategy. And then to LPs, you have to actually speak a different language and you're the translation layer in between them. And speaking LP partly is about financial metrics, things like total value over paid in capital or distributed over paid in capital, TBPI and DPI respectively, IRR, internal rate of return. But those are the outputs of the things we spend 90% of our time doing, which is picking people and companies and helping them hire people and make the right decisions. And I think it's also the case that it matters, frankly, more to LPs than it does to founders. Uh, your unique strategy, your differentiation from the rest of the market, your unique sor sourcing strategy and, and network. And so I think in the world of having spent 13 years talking to founders, I, I honestly thought my job is just to take what I know, take what I do, and do it as a solo practitioner originally. And frankly, that's good enough. I am who I am. I know what I'm doing. I've delivered previously. I'm just going to keep doing it. For LPs, that's not quite enough. And when you started, you're right. The you know, solo fund managers were far and few between relative to where they are today. Why didn't you bring on a partner? I felt like it would be better, frankly, to do with a partner, but you had to have the right partner at the right time. And the question of who is available and interested and can be pulled away from their, their existing role in their existing firm it is a really tricky one and way better to do it alone than to have the wrong partner. And you know, that's just a recipe for pain. And so, for example, I, you know, my current partner, Mark Selko, uh, who I did two years later go to and say, just come in the door. Over time, you can have any job here you want, including GP. But he had been a year previously sold his uh, company, Merced Systems, to Nice. He did a two-year tour of duty there. He came off of that. He was exhausted. He just wasn't available in 2012. So I thought, better go it alone and get started and then figure it out, uh, you know, find the right people over time. Well, there's a lot of merit to what you said, given the consequence of bad partnership dynamics. But going back to the fund one raise for a minute, and while it was quick and you know less than six months, I'm sure you learned a lot during the pre-marketing and the actual raise itself. How did that shape your mental model for the subsequent funds you raised? And I think in total now it's $600 million. First and foremost, fundraising is a relationship business. And therefore, you know, as you've got, as you build relationships with LPs, building them, in the context of trust and transparency and partnership is critical for their ongoing continuity. And so that I think has been a central premise of the way that we've worked and, and how we've communicated, including being clear when things are working and clear when they're, when they're not, because of course not everything works in the venture business. So that's one. I think we have tightened up those key elements that I talked about before 
the uniqueness of strategy, the differentiation, you know, what really is our uh, calling card? I mean, I, I think for us, the, the foundation of that is we strive to be the most useful venture capital firm that a founder has ever seen. That's how we've picked our investment team and built our team. And we've invested heavily in an operating team that spends full time trying to help companies grow faster, more efficiently. And that is our calling card. And we work basically in three sectors, all of which we know well, and we pick team that uh, has depth of experience in them. That's the way that we built the firm, but it also translates into how we uh, raise capital. Sutter Hill, as you alluded to, was an evergreen fund. Did you ever give thought to raising an evergreen structure? I know it's very rare in venture. Sutter Hill has, has done it exceptionally well. Was that ever a thought? And do you see that as a structure that could at some point come back into play? I know we, we see it a little bit with rolling funds. In the old world, it is one where the complexity goes up by basically the number of LPs times the number of portfolio companies. And Sutter Hill is a very concentrated portfolio and a very concentrated LP base. So the one thing that I think is, and I do think that rolling funds are a, you know, are a good innovation. There are conflicts of interest and challenges in it that I'm not sure they'll be for institutional LPs, but for individuals getting access to managers. I think it's an interesting innovation. I think the thing that is most likely to make it possible to do evergreen funds is actually widespread adoption of Carta because that simplifies some of the back office complexity that Sutter Hill had. But I'll still say it's hard enough to give somebody capital for 10 or 12 years. Giving somebody capital permanently is a huge leap. The question of how you get out, of when you get out, you know, do you, do you sell or do those investments just wind down? Uh, and the associated conflicts are ones that I think will make it relatively hard for institutional investors to embrace them. Right. Well, let's shift a little bit toward the uh, building of the firm, the evolution of the firm. A lot's changed in venture since you started back in 2012. Walk us through maybe the journey and how Costa Noa has evolved from an organizational standpoint. So first, from an organizational standpoint, we, you know, we really went from, you know, one GP who was the only investment professional and, uh, and to six people on the investment team, including uh, three partners, Mark Selko, John Cowgill, and then uh, Casey Elward, Amy Cheatham, and Tony Liu. And then we've got four people on the operating team, Martina Lachenko in product and product marketing, Jim Wilson in sales, Michelle McHarg in talent, and... Rachel Kwan as director of marketing. So it's a completely different place. Now, I would say we have gotten there step by step. So, you know, culturally, we try to build a learning organization and we do a lot of thinking and a lot of strategizing, but then we run experiments and we try stuff. And I would say, you know, in particular with investment team going to Mark and saying, hey, just put your foot in the door. Right. We've worked together. I've been on this board for nine years at Merced Systems, where you know they returned 22 times our capital. And we worked closely together and we had that relationship of trust. And then on the operating team, it was it was kind of the same thing, meaning I had seen what several very good firms had done. And I'd say, you know, obviously Andreessen Horowitz doing it at a completely different scale, but OpenView at Series B is doing a great job. 
true in first round at seed stage are doing it with very different models. And we were excited to go run that experiment and try it. And it started by Santa Martina, just you know, give me what time you have, what you, time you can make available and let's start working. As we tested that model and uh, saw how it was working and we both eventually got her in full time and then doubled down with Jim and then Rachel and then Michelle, where I think, you know, just unequivocal that it makes a huge difference in the life of our portfolio. Looking at the evolution of the venture market, what we have seen over the last eight years, at least from my purview, a lot of seed funds, the number has exponentially grown. You have big, big platform firms that are multi-sector, multi-strategy, and often multi-geography. And then you have folks that play somewhere in the middle, either as boutique focused on a particular sector. How do you stay competitive? Because one of the things that a lot of us see is the big firms going downstream and investing earlier. We see some of the seed managers getting bigger. How have you evolved your thinking in terms of the competitive moat that Costa Noah has? You know, thinking that anyone in the venture business has a competitive moat is a misnomer. You know, when people join the, the, the venture business, I always say, welcome to life in perfect competition. Um, it is a competitive and dynamic market and will always be. The seed market has expanded dramatically uh, and, and the number of firms has expanded dramatically. But we've also effectively, that seed market has taken over space that it didn't used to occupy. As, as I said, before about 2007 or eight, there really was not a round called a seed round. And now there's a pre-seed round and a seed round and a seed extension and a seed two, right? So there is uh, a bunch more space there. You know, that part of the market ha has evolved. And frankly, on some level, I'd say, hey, we're still doing the same things that I was doing 20 years ago when I invested Mark Selko and Matt Glickman at Merced Systems. It was two people and 20 PowerPoint slides. And when I invested in Doug Valani at Quinn Street, it was one person and 20 PowerPoint slides. And when I invested in Victor Koo at, at you know, at Yoku, he'd raised half a million dollars from Cheng Wei Ventures, and we were the first real institutional round. So... In some ways, we've also just changed names for what that activity and that, that round is. So yes, I think the, the big firms, I sometimes think of you know, the billion or multi-billion dollar firms as you know, the equivalent of the, you know, the bulge bracket in investment banking. The fact that they are in the very early stage market, seed and series A, isn't surprising. If you look at the ones that have been around for a long time, 20 years ago, it was all they did, right? It is, it is part of their roots. It is part of their history. But, you know, the, they, they tend to do it with repeat entrepreneurs, people where they have relationships. So it's opportunistic for them as opposed to the core practice. Then the other thing I'll note is mid-stage and later stage investors, they're going, going earlier because everybody is going earlier. They are responding uh, to the entrance of hedge funds and corporate VCs and mutual fund complexes into the late stage venture business. And so that pushes everybody earlier. And it does every time you're in a expansive market. And I would say, you know, we're 12 years into a bull market in the startup and venture capital ecosystem. It's exactly what happened in 98, 99, 2000 is you had the hedge funds come in and then the mutual funds come in and the corporate VCs come in. And by the way, there were tons of angels and then 2000 and one hit and all of it went away. 
I like the concept of perfect competition because it highlights the uh, difficulty of creating any real differentiation as an investment firm. Beyond that, I think it also highlights the importance of people and the type of team you build. As you built out your team, what are the traits and characteristics that you look for in people that you bring on the Know platform? It requires depth of knowledge in something important, right? Obviously, on the operating team, it's your functional expertise across many sectors. Oftentimes, in the venture business, it, uh, on the investment team, it's someone with specialized knowledge and expertise in an area. So, for example, Tony Liu had been a product manager at Databricks a leading company in the ML infrastructure space and Casey Elward had been a backend engineer. So as we were working on cloud native platforms and infrastructure, you know, brought relevant expertise, but that's not enough because it also comes with someone who has the intellectual curiosity to just go figure stuff out the drive. You know, this is not, I'll call it the sport of the leisure rich. If you want to be great at the business, it is intense. It requires broad and lateral thinking, the ability to learn lessons from different things and stitch them together and put those pieces together to think strategically and analytically about them. And it requires great EQ. That means both the, what I'll call, you know, charisma and warmth that attracts founders, but also the ability to judge people. And you have to have all of that. And, and if you don't, you know, it's, it'd be pretty hard to fit into our organization. If you were to define the uh, the Kosnoa culture in a word or maybe a couple words, what exactly is it? I'll give you four, I think, major tenets. Fundamental is intellectually honest, honesty. We try to see the world as it is and understand it as it is. Uh, the second is human. We're very focused on picking people and being the kind of partner that founders deserve. Third is collaborative. You know, the idea that you're going to steal a deal from somebody else internally, that isn't going to happen in our organization, right? You know, that, that happens and, um, you, you know, you, you don't work here anymore. You know, it, it is a team sport. And, you know, we take all those things very seriously. And, you know, it's hard to build and maintain a culture around a firm. But I think when, well, I was going to say when people walk into the building, when people used to walk into the building back when we had buildings, you know, honestly, they, they feel that it's a different kind of place and partly that, that it's more human. And you and I have been around venture for a long time and we've seen so many firms that have struggled with maintaining a healthy culture for you know, long-term durability and whether it's generational planning, whether it's internal politics, the tenants that you laid out are incredibly compelling. How do you maintain that? We've gone through three cycles of articulating our values you know, as we've continued to grow team so that the team can be part of articulating it and that it, that it makes sense because it's a, it's, it, uh, it grows, right? It isn't, I wrote a memo to myself the day that the second investor started about what our values were so that we, there was something, but we've moved past that. So it, it, it extends it and it embraces other people. So that's one. Uh, the second is you've got to reward the right things. There are you know, people on our team who've stepped in to help out someone on a, you know, key deal where they weren't going to get all the credit and you got to praise that. And then you've got to call out privately the examples that run counter to it. So th those are, I think, the major tenants. And then there's a question of how you hire, 
right? So you have to hire for them. But generally, I think it's easier to hire for them when people, to some extent, grow up in the culture. And one of the places where I think people have gotten in trouble, and I know you and I have talked about this in other forums, is thinking that everybody has to have been a successful CEO in order to be a venture capital partner, that they already need to be rich and famous. And you know, if you have an organization where you're growing a group of young investment professionals, but they're basically in a feudal system, you get senior partners dropped on top of them who've just sold their company and made hundreds of millions of dollars and are, you know, have second and third houses and are busy and come with egos, you know, it's going to be pretty hard to maintain a healthy culture in, in a firm. And I just don't see that working over the long haul. Moving maybe to other parts of your model and the evolution of Costa Nova, in particular, you know, we've talked about a boutique, you know, craft venture, but you do employ, you know, some of these newer methods with the operational team. I had also talked to your CFO, Mike Albang, who mentioned you also incubate companies. I think Alation was one of them. Tell us a little bit more about that piece of the model and how core it is to overall strategy. I want to pause on one thing first, because I do think that I, you know, again, I got incredible training at Sutter Hill and in the craft of venture capital, but there were a set of things that I wanted to try that weren't done there. And so, for example, that was a partner only model. And we've, you know, built with younger investment professionals. There was, you know, it incubated a company every once in a while and has actually done even better, you know, with Pure and, and now Snowflake. But there wasn't an active seed strategy. Uh, there was no operating team and wasn't going to be. And those are things that we've tested and iterated to success and that are central parts of our model. But they were theories when we started and we had to test them and try them. So then moving on to, you know, to incubation, you know, we really started incubating companies as, as soon as we had our own office. <laughs> right? So I spent some time working, frankly, at the same dining room table that I'm working at today. Dana Groff from Triangle Peak Partners let me hang out in their office for uh, four or five months uh, before, we, before we finally got our own office. But we started uh, right away in incubating companies. And I think it's a huge value proposition to founders. It makes it clear that this is an office where people build things as opposed to an office about finance. And it lets you work more closely with companies in those formative stages so that you're talking to them every day. You talk to them when they come back from a sales call. So you debrief on that and you learn more about their market. You know, that has been, I think, a really central part of it. So I think in the case of Alation, for example, we led a seed financing you know, right at, at company formation, we incubated it for a year. Uh, their first customer was a portfolio company. You know, we got to talk enough about what was working and what wasn't working and how we were going to go to market and whether we sold the IT or line of business and the like that we actually knew enough to uh, lead the Series A as well. And of course, now they've gone on to create the category uh, called the Enterprise or Machine Learning Data Catalog. And you know, we think have a uh, extraordinary opportunity to continue to lead that market. Really interesting component. I'm glad that you brought up that you have tried things that are fundamentally different than your, your time at Sutter Hill. I always love talking about portfolio construction. There's a varying level of opinions on what makes for good portfolio construction. What's your theory on portfolio construction at Costa Noah? Broadly, I would say really coming out of that elation experience and going into our fund three. So 
five years into the firm's life, we basically said our seed investments have been going so well that we should be doing more of them. And so we have, you know, on some level across fund one, fund two, fund three, and each of those, we made nine or 10 series A investments. In fund one and fund two, that was really scary because that was most of what we had. And 10 shots on goal, if you want to call it that, isn't very many for a very early stage portfolio. But we did it that way because we, that's the kind of firm we wanted to build, right? We wanted to have the time and energy to spend with 10 companies, not have it spread across 50 companies. And so as we went into fund three and we had had that success with seeding and incubating companies, and we had grown the team where Mark, John, Casey were all part of the team, the operating team was fully built, we actually effectively tripled the number of seed investments. So in fund three, we did 20 seed investments and 10 series A's. And I would expect uh, going forward, we'll do about the same. So we've really expanded the number of companies where we enter at seed and a big chunk of those we've incubated. So just prior to COVID, we had five companies incubating between our San Francisco and Palo Alto offices. As another example, we have an active entrepreneur in residence program where, you know, people work with us to help shape an idea and then, you know, go off to us to start a company. And we have during COVID had an EIR, in fact, from outside the Bay Area with whom we worked for four months, have now agreed to finance his company uh, here, you know, at company formation. And we had done all that, never having met him in, in person. So after having reached that agreement, he just last week uh, came down and we all got to meet him face to face for the very first time. What you know do you look for when a seed stage company is getting that Series A? I presume a portion of them become core investments, some don't. How do you decide and what is the internal decision making within the partnership? So the way we work and the way we make decisions is you know consistent across the the two. So in particular. Uh, we all vote and we all vote. We do what I call parameterized voting. So, you know, we score them one to 10 on uh, there's an overall score and then on product uh, team for this market, market and deal dynamics. And then we track that over time and we just, you know, we literally. And so and it's not that there's any definitive number above which things get done or don't get done. It's that in particular doing that in a parameterized way lets you talk about the differences of opinion and tease them out and have really substantive conversations uh, about the most important areas. So the answer almost always comes uh, out of just talking about it. <laughs> and so, for example, you know, if you take a, a, a team, someone might say, this is the best founder I've ever seen. I give it a 10. And somebody else might rate it a six because it's a a founder who knows the market, but the CTO who's going to actually hire the engineers and build the team isn't there yet. And it's incomplete. Right. And so, you know, just knowing that it's a six and a 10 doesn't doesn't tell you the answer. You've got to talk about it and say, OK, how do we balance that out? How do we think about what's there is a plus, but there are gaps that to us, is, I think we, we've evolved into that. Again, it's something that we started out with a theory and then tested and got better over time. But that's worked extraordinarily well for us. Going back a little bit in time, you know, when you started obviously being a solo, bringing on other partners, I've seen other firms struggle with this. 
in bringing in new partners and having them feel empowered as equal parts of the partnership and having voices that have, you know, similar levels of influence, how do you make sure that that stays in place where folks like Mark can feel that, you know, despite the fact that you started the firm, they are just as much a partner as anybody else? So I think we, we've done it relatively well, but I think, you know, if you had this conversation with John or Mark or Casey, they'd say it requires active attention, <laughs> including from my perspective, just remembering to keep my mouth shut sometimes. You know, we had, a, I think, a, a seminal moment on this about three years ago where there was a company that I was working on and uh, John and I were working on together and we liked it and nobody else at the firm liked it. And we both thought that we should do it. And we went through this voting process. And then we started talking about the differences of opinion. And during the context of that conversation, the other folks in the firm convinced John. And so then I was standing alone and I said, well, look, then it's really clear, we're not gonna do it. And I had to call back a founder who I had, you know, I had said, hey, we're leaning in, we just have to have the official conversation, the like, and I had to eat crow. And I, by the way, I wanted to do the deal. And I think it has turned out to be a pretty good one. And I was embarrassed by, in talking to the founder, to, to tell him that we actually hadn't gotten it through the partnership. But it was incredibly important in reinforcing the words that we use all the time, which is you're here because you're smart, because you're knowledgeable, to have a point of view. We want to hear from you. We want your best every day. And we want the best ideas to win regardless of where they come from. But it can't be just words. And that requires trust in the process. Well, that certainly speaks to the culture of getting it right versus being right. Moving back to how you construct, you, you mentioned uh, fewer shots at goal. I'd presume that the ownership stakes that you take in companies is extremely important. What do you target from an ownership standpoint at the Series A? At Series A, we're, you know, look, we're, t we're, you know, we're typically targeting 20%, and that's um, consistent with, frankly, most uh, Series A venture firms, and which necessarily means, look, at, at Series A, when you're uh, a new Series A investor, you know, pretty much you have to lead. And then at seed stage, you know, we're typically targeting 10 plus percent, 10, 10 to 15%, and we are... Uh, are very happy to to, to co-lead and try to be as partner friendly as we can in, in that regard. So you know, we try not to do things where you know we have just a toe in the door. We're trying not to be you know Johnny Appleseed investing 200k in 50 companies. Um, but I think it's really important part of the firm that we actually love co-leading with another firm at seed stage. It uh, makes for a great partnership and a great relationship. And every, everyone knows the math of venture is really, really difficult. The number of companies that achieve a billion dollar plus outcome. And in all the discussions I have, there's so many people that say, no, you need plenty of shots of goal at the early stage, you need 30 to 40. Do you think companies to have a shot at one or two billion dollar plus exits, your model is you know 18 to 20 companies, higher ownership, but the math is still really, really hard to get to a 3x net, which I, th I think is more of a three and a half x gross when you factor in 20% carry. When you get that question of, do you have enough shots at goal? How do you answer that? We do now, actually. I think getting to, you know, 18 to 20 is actually, you know, pretty good and a pretty good spot for, for a firm. We did not in fund one and fund two. 
And the thing that I always said to LPs is, it's not so much of a risk for an LP because you're diversifying by picking different managers. It's a big risk for the GP, but we're going with, you know, 10 or 12 because that's all we have staffing to do in what we think is the right way to do venture capital. And we're not willing to compromise on our principles about the kind of partner that we ought to be to our portfolio companies. And so it's our risk, not yours. And the good news is, you know, we, we've made it through. I think our, all of our early stage funds are on track to deliver that, you know, 3x net or better, which I think, you know, it is what an LP should expect from venture capital. Otherwise, they, should, they can put all their money in private equity and get two and a half x net and write $100 million checks and take no risk and have shorter duration. You know, to me, the challenge is you, you, you get to 30 or 40 or 50 companies and not only do you have lower ownership, but it also is it's a very different business. So I'm, I'm not actually convinced that it's worse from a financial perspective, but I think I really do come back to the best investors in every asset class are have specialized expertise, are highly value added and have bounded amounts of capital that fit the strategy. I think you know, that's what we're doing. Yeah, a lot of our listeners are going to be folks that are running seed firms and early, early seed funds and often case not leading. Do you think that methodology would be different than what you're, you know, articulating? I mean, does it make sense for a smaller seed fund to have many more bets in their portfolio, given that they're earlier stage, more risk? Or do you still think that a concentrated portfolio makes sense across stages? I think it's very hard to run as concentrated as we are if one is a seed-only investor, and particularly in the context of a, of a relatively small fund with an emerging manager. To me, the question that I would ask is, with success and as you grow, do you end up sticking with that model or can you evolve into a place where you can lead rounds? Because to me, I look at it and think, you know, you control pricing. I mean, obviously the market controls pricing, right? But you decide, you know, what price you're willing to pay. You know, to some extent, you control allocation when you're leading. Uh, you have uh, more influence. It's frankly more worth your while to invest in adding value, right? If, you, if you're a 200K check, it's not so much worth your, worth your while to have a full operating team going to, you know, help Alation turn the corner. The challenge, I think, is that people who start out with really disparate portfolios tend to grow into larger check sizes with still really disparate portfolios. And that, I'm not convinced, is the right answer. I'm glad you provided the distinction between the operating methodology from a portfolio construction standpoint between a seed fund and someone like yourself that's more Series A focused. But do you also feel like there's a fundamental skill set difference and maybe a different muscle? that truly needs to be flexed when you're a Series A investor versus a seed investor? Yeah, it's, it is a different muscle. And I think we, I would say in our fund too, we were trying to lean, lean in on seeds, but we kept applying Series A standards to seed companies so they wouldn't get through, right? You know, at seed stage, you're picking extraordinary people, extraordinary people who, you know, have founder market fit, who've diagnosed a really interesting problem and have a theory about how to solve it, but that theory hasn't yet been proven. And they might be alone or they might have one or two co-founders. Ultimately, that's the judgment that you're making. And you know, at Series A, we've, I mean, we've built extraordinary muscles for 
not just talking to customers, but you know, introducing prospects and going on sales calls together and you know, talking to industry experts. And I, and I think founders repeatedly tell us, oh, you know, whether we invest or don't invest, oh, you guys did more work and understand my business better than you know, the other people who I've been talking to and who are often slinging capital around in part because they're in billion dollar funds and need to quote unquote, put capital to work. And so that is a, that's a source of pride for us. And we think we're really good at it. And we learn some unique things that other people don't learn, which is partly why we've done such a good job at picking. But that actually made the tra transition to you know, doubling or tripling the pace of seed investments a little tricky because we had to unlearn some things. Greg, this has been such an enjoyable conversation. We're going to end with a quick three-question lightning round. We call it Heat Check. First question is, what is the biggest career mistake you've ever made and you're learning from it? I tried to over-negotiate my offer into Netscape and Jim Clark, as <laughs> he was like, great, you don't take that offer, I'll lower it. To me, that's a lesson in don't over-optimize. If there's something that you know you want, uh, don't try to get the last nickel off the table. Work the middle of the field, pick great people, and just get things done. That's great advice. Moving back to VC now, what, what do you think is the most uh, important trait you think a VC should have? Picking great people. I think picking people is, in some ways, I mean, frankly, I find it easier. I think some people find it harder. But I think picking great markets, understanding unit economics, understanding product strategy, all important. But I think there's no substitute for attracting and picking extraordinary people. I do think it's harder to do than just saying it. So the final question I have is, what investor do you admire the most or a firm that you aspire toward being? So I'll, I'll start out by saying there are a lot because there are actually there are a lot of great investors and there are a lot of investors who are really great people. And, you know, people joke about it being the dark side. But by the way, it's not. Most of the investors I know I, I really like. But you asked me to pick one and I'm going to say Brad Feld. And I think, you know, Brad has been a great partner and mentor to me, but he is positive and inspirational doesn't shy away from the hard questions. So he'll tell you exactly what he thinks. And he has invested his, you know, the position that he has created for himself in the industry in bringing people along, you know, bringing managers along in building ecosystems in, in cities uh, across the country, in building ecostars and supporting the venture and startup ecosystem in extraordinary ways. And that's the kind of leader that I aspire to be. Yeah. I, and, and I'm not surprised to hear it. I I often talk to people and who point to Brad toward being an early mentor and, and so helpful and just giving back. Greg, this has just been a lot of fun. Very insightful. Thanks again for being on. My pleasure. Uh, thrilled to do it. Thanks so much for listening to our episode with Greg. To learn more about him, Coast to Know Adventures, in a summary of the show, please be sure to go to Apple Podcasts where you'll find detailed notes. While you're there, please rate and review. It really, really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlock episode as soon as it's released. 